0: Well, we're in Nehemiah chapter 4 now, and if you've been following the story, we, we talked about how the Babylonians had taken uh, the, the Israelites, the Jews, into captivity, and they for, for 70 years they were supposed to be in captivity, and we've been studying about a guy by the name of Nehemiah who was the cupbearer to the king. And when his brothers came back from Jerusalem, there was a group that was allowed to go back and rebuild the temple. But the rest of the city was in rubble and the walls had been knocked down. And, and it was just, there was discouragement going on. And Nehemiah, it says that he wept and he mourned and he prayed. And for four months he did this until one day the king said, hey, you look so downcast, what's going on? Now, when you're the cupbearer to the king and the guy who's supposed to be tasting your food looks downcast, you think maybe there's a secret plot to kill me or something like that. So he's never seen Nehemiah like this before. And Nehemiah shares with him about uh, what's going on and, and he appeals to to any king's uh, feeling for your ancestors. and. Uh, and so not only does the king release him to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, which that king had said would never be rebuilt, but he also gives him the, the papers to the royal forest to pick up the lumber on the way to do the rebuilding. And not only that, he gives him a military escort so that he can get through there. And so, I mean, that's Ephesians. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could dare to ask or imagine. And so now we've seen a little bit of opposition that's taken place as they've started to rebuild the wall. We saw in Chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago how there's some 38 names that are mentioned and where they worked on the wall and how Nehemiah had, had gotten the, the project to get going. And by the way, when they get done, they will have rebuilt the wall in 52 days. And this is by a guy who is a food taster, knows nothing about the construction business, and he's able to mobilize people by his leadership to get that done. Now, the main reason we're looking at Nehemiah is that uh, if you're visiting today, we're glad you're here. But our official opening isn't until uh, 9-11, until the Sunday after Labor Day. We've been doing what what I would call soft services. So, this is for us to get organized and get ready and to know what we need to do and fine-tune in order to be ready. But uh, So we've been looking at leadership because for most of us in this room, we're going to be the leaders of Water's Edge. And so uh, we've been looking at these dynamics of leadership. And today I want to look at this dynamic as this. How do you handle opposition when you're a leader? And th- there is no opportunity without opposition. And I think one of the great tests of leadership is how do you handle opposition? You know, do you panic under pressure? Do you get up tight? Do you lose your temper? Do you blow up? Do you get discouraged? Do you give up? You know, what do you do? And so if you're going to be a leader, I found that part of the job description is putting up with opposition. And so today we're going to look at some things about it, and so let's get right into it. Number one is the tactics of opposition. I want to mention three, but there's more than three, but these are the three that are mentioned in the text today. And uh, so I just want us to uh, take a look at, at these. So let's start with the scripture there, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. When had heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. So the first tactic that's often used in opposition is ridicule. And uh, we've got a clear example of that in our text. That's a method that's still used today, I think, especially if you're a student. Uh, in fact, the, there's a lot of books even in, in about psychological warfare in the business place. And, uh, of course, the world continues to ridicule the church, I think. Uh, Put us down, characterizes us as either weak uh, or ignorant or fanatical people. Uh, All pastors are wimps and crooks. Uh, And I'll tell you why that's such an effective means of opposition, is that it attacks our sense of self-worth. And often we can handle almost everything else but ridicule. You know, when I was a youth director, I had a lot of kids. and By the way, uh, I used to be the youth director at Elmhurst uh, Heidi for several years, and and uh, and the kids went to York High School. But there was one particular professor there or teacher at York High School who just made it his business to make fun of and to, and to tease and sarcastic comments to the kids that he knew were Christians in his class. Uh, you could be a Christian businessman, and maybe you've been ridiculed by some of your associates. But the fact is, is that ridicule is always a substitute for reason. You know, laughter is a substitute for logic. And when some people can't reason you out of a position, what they will do is they will ridicule you out of a position. And the truth is that people who ridicule are usually just afraid. They're afraid maybe that you might be, be succeeding, Uh, In fact, uh, here's the thing he uses name-calling. He says, those feeble Jews, he implies that they have a selfish motive. He makes fun of their beliefs. You know, they're offering their sacrifices. And he overstates the case. By the way, overstating things is often a good tool of ridicule. You know, he says, you're going to rebuild the wall in one day? Well, did you ever read anything there that Nehemiah said he was going to rebuild the wall in one day? He never said that. But often what people do is they set up a straw man, and then they try to knock down that straw man. Notice in verse 3 that the ridicule becomes contagious. Because when Sanballat makes his initial ridicule, his friend, his sidekick here, Tobiah, he chimes in and says, Me too! And he starts mocking because someone else took the lead. And he says, Why that wall? If they put a fox on it, it would tumble down because it won't be strong enough. So, So that's one form. The second form of, of opposition is is uh, just resistance. Organized resistance. Let's look at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till it had reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of, of to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very Angry, they all plotted together to to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Now, instead of a couple critics, now what you have is you have a, a, an all-out conspiracy. Uh, Sandballot has gathered all the disgruntled parties together, and they're going to resist the building of the wall. Sandballot, by the way, and the Samaritans were to the north; the Arabs are to the south. To buy in the Ammonites are to the east and the men of Ashot are to the west. So they're, they're pretty much completely surrounded. Did you ever hear that story about the Lone Ranger and Tano? Where, uh, they, they're riding one day and the, this warring tribe of Indians is coming right to them and, and the Lone Ranger says, what are we going to do now, Tano? And he says, Kimasabi, we ride to the north. So as they're riding to the north, there's another tribe of, of warring Indians coming right at them. He says, Tano, what are we going to do now? He says, Kimasabi, we, We ride to the west. And as they ride to the west, there's a whole other warring tribe of Indians coming out. He says, Tano, what are we going to do? He says, we go to the south, Kimisabi. And they go to the south, and there's all these warring Indians coming at them. And and the low ranger says, what do we do now, Tano? And he says, what do you mean we, white man? (laughs) So they're completely surrounded. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed that negative people tend to gravitate together. It's kind of like that birds of a feather flock together. Uh, you know, they get together and they say in verse 8, we're going to fight and stir up trouble. I don't know if you've ever met folks like that, but they're all around. And some people think their whole purpose in life is just to be against stuff. Now there's a third tactic, and that's the tactic of rumor. And so let's look down at verse 11. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, We'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. You know, the quickest way to spread a rumor is to feed on people's fears. And the gist of this rumor is that we're going to get you from all sides, we're going to attack you and you won't even know what hit you. And the rumor of this attack was enough to incite a panic. I'd like, it's kind of maybe like the stock market uh, inciting some panic over what's going on. But, but let me just give you two characteristics of rumors. First one is they're always spread by those who are closest to the enemy. In fact, those who, Jews who are living outside of the city walls, they're the ones who they spread the negative report to the people who were living inside. And I think what happens is when you're around negative people all the time, you tend to get negative. You become infected. In fact, that's, that's one of the interesting things about rumors. And, and uh, Dave, I think you probably understand this medically. You know, you can walk into a room where somebody is sick and you don't know they're sick. But just coming in, you've now been exposed. And once you're exposed to some type of, of, of germ or something, then it starts to enter in your body Then it attacks your body, and it infects you. You are now have the disease, and then you become a carrier of the disease. And this is exactly what happens in rumors. You walk into a room, you're totally, you know, oblivious, and somebody says, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? Now you've been infected. You've been exposed and infected. And then oftentimes that will then cause you to be, have the disease, and then all of a sudden you're a carrier and you start passing that rumor on to somebody else. Two really helpful questions that I found when dealing with people, when they talk to me about other people, I say, have you talked to them about this personally? And if not, can I have your permission to, to use your name when I go to talk to them about it? <laughs> you know? And usually that puts an, uh, you know, an end to it. But I usually also say, am I a part of the problem or the solution? And if I'm not, why are you telling me? You know, so uh, it's it's infectious, and at, at the at, and the point is, Satan can get somebody if he can get somebody inside the camp to say it can't be done. Then there's kind of a victory of sorts because now he's infiltrated the ranks, and rumors are always spread by those closest to the enemy. The second thing is they're exaggerated the more they're repeated. Remember verse 12, that says, Then they told us ten times over. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, what happens when a rumor gets exaggerated ten times over? People start to believe it. In fact, it was Hitler who said, If you tell people a lie long enough, they will believe it. And the point I want to make is that ne- the negative always gets exaggerated when you're in a project. Always. And here's the leadership lesson for today. Leaders don't swallow rumors. They may listen to them, they might chew on them, but they should never swallow them. Now, let's look at the effect of opposition. Uh, Look look down at verse 10 with me. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to their work. And when you're working on something, you've been getting ridiculed and bombarded with rumor and resistance, you're going to get discouraged. And the effect of the opposition often is just discouragement. Uh, and when you're discouraged, when's that most likely to occur? Notice in verse 6, it says, We rebuilt the wall and it reached half its height. You know? Friends, you know when discouragement comes? At the halfway point. <laughs> And I, I'm sure I don't know the exact point in this, but when you're in a marathon, there's they say there's a wall that you have to get through in order to, to finish the race.
1: I don't know if any of you have
0: any unfinished projects around your house. You started them, but you never finished them. Notice I'm not looking at my wife. Uh, you get halfway through a life and you have a midlife crisis. Halfway through a program, halfway through a, a project project. And discouragement sets in. And out of this text, I think we see four causes of discouragement. First of all, is fatigue. It says the strength of the laborers is giving out. I mean, hard work, no coffee breaks, long days, double duty. And they're just plain tired. And then second is frustration. It says there was so much rubble. I don't know if you've ever been in a building project and there's always piles of plaster and stuff lying around. and, And just being around all that stuff, can pretty much frustrate you after a while. And then three is failure. They said we cannot rebuild the wall. And I'll tell you, when you're tired, everything looks impossible. Vince Lombardi, the former coach of the Green Bay Packers, made this statement, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And then four is fear. They said not only that, but our enemies are going to attack us. Now the opposition always has two goals. The first is to hinder God's work, which we saw in verse 8, and the other thing is to stop God's work, which we see in verse 11. So what's the right response to this, oppor- to, to, to this opposition? When you're frustrated and tired and feeling like a failure and you're a little afraid, what do you do? What do you do when your family's under attack? What do you do when your business is under attack? When you're, when you're, when you are under attack? When your church is under attack? Well, Let's look at verses 4 and 5. First of all, you rely on God. Listen to what Nehemiah says. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. By the way, uh, sometimes you'll read, In the Psalms, these incredible comments, and he just goes, where does that come from? You know, throw their babies off the cliffs and let them dash into the rocks or, you know, break their teeth or something like that. I read a a, a Czechoslovakian theologian who made this statement. He said, rage belongs with God. And let's face it, we all have those feelings where you just want to punch somebody out, don't we? At some time or other, we get frustrated with other people. Rage belongs with God. So, so here's what we do, is we take our rage and our true feelings to God and we leave them with Him. We don't act them out, you know. And so he, He's pretty hot here. He's letting off some steam. And by the way, when, you, when you're ridiculed, don't suppress it. Confess it. Rage belongs with God. You rely on God and you just admit it all to Him. And notice what he says. He says, God, we're trusting on you to defend us here. He doesn't get caught up in any name calling. You know, when Sanballat Sanballat said, you know, oh, you feeble Jews, he doesn't go, well, you feeble Samaritans, you know, tit for tat. Instead, he just, he doesn't call names, he relies on God. Notice in this I put this in your study notes, it's on the inside page here, Proverbs twenty six, fourteen. He says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. He's saying here, if you get ridiculed for your faith or for whatever, don't answer back, because then you're no better than the person who's ridiculing you. So if you're a leader and you're under attack, rely on God. Nehemiah's automatic response, and I know if you've been with us this summer series, you know his automatic response is to pray. There are more prayers in the book of Nehemiah than any other book of the Bible besides the Psalms. And so, by the way, the greater the opposition, the more you need to pray. And the greater the opposition, the more you need to depend on God. And here's the leadership lesson, I think. When you're ridiculed, don't take it out on other people, but take it out with God. Or speak it out with God. All right. When you're in a... Situation: your home or work or school, don't take it out on people. All right, that's what Nehemiah ends up doing. He relies on God. The best response, I think, to ridicule is no response. And instead you pray and you keep doing what you should have been doing in the first place, which is what Dave so eloquently said with our children's message today. All right, verses 1 and 3, they're ridiculed. Verses 4 and 5, he prays. Verse 6 says, so we rebuilt the wall." Ridicule can't stop you from doing something unless you allow it to. And the point is, if you're a leader, you're going to be under attack, so take it out with God. And sometimes if you just ignore the criticism, it just dissipates and falls away. And sometimes it just, when it intensifies, in fact, when when these guys realized that the ridicule wasn't working, they said, well, we're going to fight against you, we're going to stir up trouble. So it went from ridicule to resistance and the opposition now gets organized. And so here's the second step of dealing with opposition, and that's this. You've got to respect the opposition. How do you know that Nehemiah respected the opposition? Look down at verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and we posted a guard, at night, a guard day and night to meet this threat. And by the way, this is a healthy respect, you know. They did the prayerful thing and they did the practical thing. It's one thing to lie in bed and say, oh, I'm so afraid that burglars might break into our house. It's another thing to get up and lock the front door. Okay. Oliver Cromwell said, trust God and keep your powder dry. So petition, my grandma Dixie used to say, without precaution is presumption. Okay. Petition without precaution is presumption. So you do pray and you do rely on God But you also respect the opposition. And the stronger the opposition is, the stronger you need to respond. Look at verse 9. Who prayed? Somebody just shouted out. Who prayed? We prayed. This is about the fifth or sixth prayer in the book of Nehemiah already. And every other one, Nehemiah says, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. But this is the first time it says, we prayed. Now, where do you think they got that idea? Because they've been watching their leader. And he kept going to God whenever they had issues. So now they say, hey, maybe this is what we should be doing. So we prayed. And uh, they. I think that's a great example too, show and tell. Leaders lead by showing, not just by telling. And Nehemiah's been praying for three and a half chapters, so the people say, maybe it works. So so they, they start to pray. And the point I want to make is that whenever there's corporate opposition, there needs to be corporate response. We pray. So Nehemiah sets up an alarm system. It's kind of a 24-hour watch. The point is he knows his opposition. And there's that old, old phrase, to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed. And a lot of leaders have lost it because they underestimated the opposition. A phrase that's used over and over again in the New Testament is watch and pray, watch and pray. Jesus said in Matthew 26, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then that next verse, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Paul picks it up when he says, devote yourselves to prayer and be watchful. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter when he says, Casting your cares upon him. He says, uh, because he cares for you, therefore he says, be self-controlled and alert. You cast your cares on him, but you're self-controlled and alert. For what the devil roars around like a prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And by the way, uh, for you animal. Uh, ge- uh, sometimes I stay up late and I watch uh, the uh, geographic society, you know, with the animal kingdoms t- type of thing. Do you know that, that uh, a lion is not the fastest animal in terms of catching its prey? What gives them the advantage is their roar, like that. Because when they roar, it paralyzes for a split second that rabbit or whatever they were trying to chase. And in that second of being paralyzed, then the lion's able to pounce on them. And, the, and the, the devil cannot hurt you if you're a believer. He might be able to gum you, but he can't bite you. <laughs> but what he does is he paralyzes you with his roar. But be, be self-controlled and alert because he roars, he, he roams around like a roaring lion. So, watching is the human part. That's posting the guard. And pray is the divine part. That's trusting God. You know, watch is locking the door and praying is, God, I'm trusting you. So you rely on God and you respect the opposition. And when you're under attack, whether it's personally or in your family or in your church or business or whatever, the next thing you do is you reinforce the weak points. Let's look down at verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. I thought that was pretty cool where that one kid said, hey, where are the bows and arrows? I don't know if you caught that. But he, he had it. Caleb. You should have been here a couple weeks ago because we, uh, we had a guest speaker. And, and we got off of Nehemiah. And uh, they were talking about Caleb back in the book of Joshua. And so when Dave got up to do the children's sermon, he said, uh, today we're not going to be talking about Nehemiah, we're going to talk about Caleb. And and our kid Caleb goes, yay, like <laughs> like this. He was, and he goes, not you, Caleb. But, uh, <laughs> but, but here's what he's doing. He's reinforcing the weak points. Maybe the wall was only a couple feet high here, and, and so there's these exposed places that, that he realizes strategically they need to, to build these up. Now, those of you who are businessmen, do you know the weak points in your business? Where do you need to shore things up? Those of you who are parents, do you know where the weak points in your family are? What are those things that you need to shore up? Those of you who are couples, do you know where things are in your marriage? Where do you need to shore things up? And the principle that I think Nehemiah is teaching here is that good leaders know where they're vulnerable. And they reinforce the areas of vulnerability. Let's say that you've got to make a sales presentation this week. So what you do is you figure out what the objections are going to be before you even get into that encounter so you know how to answer those objections when they come up. Look at verse 16 here. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand, and they held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. In other words hey, we're working all around this wall, we're fortifying the, the whole city, uh, we don't have a professional army per se, we've just got a bunch of amateurs here. So he says, whenever you hear the trumpet blowing, you'll know that everyone's supposed to run over to that side where, when they hear the trumpet and fight over there. It's pretty smart. And the principle here is, keep the lines of communication open during times of attack, when you're facing times of opposition. But the thing I want you to see is that he turned the entire city into an armed camp. Everybody did two things. They worked and they carried a weapon. And here's the point, and if you don't get anything else today out of this study, I hope you'll get this. Every time you start building something for God, you are asking for a battle. You try to start building your marriage, you're asking for a battle. You try to build up your own spiritual life, you're asking for a battle. You start to build a church, Believe me, folks, you're asking for a battle. Why? Because Satan doesn't want churches built up. He doesn't want marriages built up. He doesn't want your spiritual life built up. Not at all. So he gets people to oppose you. And here's another leadership lesson today. Leaders must build and battle at the same time. Because if you start doing anything of significance in this world, somebody is going to stand up and oppose you. Now, what do you do? Nehemiah has these options. He's got these people who started to oppose him. With rumor and resistance and ridicule, he could give up, he could leave the wall and go fight, or he could build the wall and arm himself defensively. So you never leave the wall to fight the enemy. That's the principle. Leaders build and battle at the same time. And in a practical sense, you could spend all your time putting out fires and you never get the job done. You can spend all your time greasing the squeaky wheel, or the critic, or the complainer, or the kook, and you never get what God has called you to do done. Verse 13, it says, he posted them by families. Why did he do that? Because when you're under attack, you, you you need to have some support. And by the way, that's one of the benefits of a small group, isn't it? And as we get into the fall, you'll be hearing a lot more about small groups and men. We plan on having some men small groups that uh, you can tie into either early in the morning or sometime at night. But uh, God never meant for us to be lone rangers. And here's another principle. I didn't put it on your outline, but just think about this. Never fight a battle alone. Get some support. And the fact is we need support because it's tough being a Christian businessman. And it's tough being a student in school. And it's tough having you know, Christian attitudes in a society where everything says, no, don't live for Christ, live for yourself. So you rely on God, you respect the opposition, you reinforce the weak points, and then when you're under attack, you reassure the people. Look at verse 14, we're we're getting to the end here. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's basically, I mean, this is like a locker room talk. He's saying, go for it. You know, He's talking to the troops. He's reinforcing their confidence. He's, he's relieving them of their fears. He's He's trying to raise the morale. And that's the task of leadership. When your family's under attack, when your business is under attack, when your church is under attack, reinforce the morale. Now, Here's what he, he said to, to, uh, to regain their confidence. In fact, I would encourage you to underline these three words. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I loved history when I was a student. It was amazing how many times you had slogans that were given whenever you were in a battle at, so that people would start to remember things. Uh, none of us were around during the Spanish-American War, but do you remember what the slogan was? Remember the what? The main, The Maine. That was down in Texas. Remember the yeah. Alamo. Oh, yeah. World War I. Remember the Lusitania. World War II. Remember Pearl Harbor. And it's interesting to me, every time they give these slogans about remember something they had to do when they were defeated. You know. Remember that defeat back then? Let's go get them. <laughs> Nehemiah does just the opposite. He says, hey, remember when we got exiled in Babylonia? Remember the Lord. What he's saying here is, let's look out at the future. Let's get our eyes off the opposition. Let's get our eyes back on the Lord. You know, and folks, I want to tell you when when you're under attack, whenever whatever the devil can do to focus you on the opposition, then he's already made a major victory. So you focus not on the opposition, but you focus on the Lord. Now, what is the Lord like? Verse fourteen, he says, "Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome." You know, it's interesting. Give you a little Hebrew lesson. That word, "don't be afraid," and "awesome" are really two same words in Hebrew. Just it's the context they're used in. Afraid and awesome, and I think he's trying to make it make us understand that when you fear God, you won't fear people. The fear of God replaces the fear of men. When I, don't, when I don't fear God, then I'm afraid of men. <laughs> but when I fear God, I'm not afraid of men. And uh, I'm, by the way, I'm talking about reverential fear here. And then I don't fear anybody else because I know that I'm, what I'm doing is pleasing to God. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12. He said, don't fear people who can kill your body. Fear the person who can send you to hell after your body's dead. He's saying if you have a healthy respect for God and a reverence for him, and you realize how powerful he is, you have no problem fearing people. Notice down to verse 20. He says, uh, our God will fight for us. Now there's one last step in facing opposition, and then we'll be through. You rely on God, you respect the opposition, you reinforce your weak points, you reassure the people, and then you refuse to quit. Notice verse 15. Verse 15. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. So you just keep on keeping on, you know. They tried to stir up trouble. They tried to stop the work. And now, when you know what the opposition's goal is, what do you do? For heaven's sake, don't quit. You know. Calvin Coolidge put it this way press on, he said. Nothing can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing's more common than ta- unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. And I would suggest that the Holy Spirit led person could say what Calvin Coolidge closed his statement with, persistence and determination are the overwhelming power. We just don't know how to quit. Look at verse 21 to 23. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night, so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. I want you to notice a couple quick things. is They worked through the night. He told all the people that lived outside Jerusalem, Stop commuting to work. Come on and stay in Jerusalem. Because when you're under attack, you got to stick together. Nehemiah Nehemiah's leading the way. He's doing his share. He says, Neither I nor my brother took off our clothes. And leaders model persistence. They're the last to give up. They're the last to jump ship. They're the last to refuse to quit. So I want to ask you in closing today, what does the devil want you to give up on? Is it reading your Bible through in this next year? Is it giving up on a career? Is it giving up on a dream that you've had? Is it giving up on on an idea, or a ministry that you have at the church, or giving up on your small group. You see, if that's the thing that he wants you to give up on, then that's the very thing you should keep doing. You know, There's an old adage, it's not in the Bible, that one day Satan had a garage sale. Now you know it wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> and at the garage sale, he was selling all the tools that he had used for all the centuries Line, hatred, malice, lust, envy, greed, jealousy, pride, all these different things. And over in the corner was one tool that was priced about five times as much as any of the other tools in the garage sale. And nobody bought it because it was so expensive. So someone went over and they say, why is this tool so expensive? And he said, because that's discouragement. And that's my most important tool. See, Satan might not get you to go out and commit a moral sin, but he'll discourage you quicker than you'll know. And a discouraged Christian is an ineffective Christian because that means that we've taken our eyes off the Lord and we put it onto our circumstances. And since Satan never sold that tool, he's still using it today. How many of you have maybe had him use it on you this week? Discouragement. A fundamental principle of the Christian life. Don't give up. And so I want to close with this poem. I want to let go, but I won't let go. There are battles to fight by day and night for God and the right, and I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I'm sick, tis true, and worried, and blue, and worn out through and through, but I won't give up. I won't let go, but I want to let go. I'll never yield. What? Lie down in the field and surrender my shield? No, I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. May this be my song mid-legions of wrong. Oh, God, keep me strong so I never let go. And persistence is the ultimate test of leadership. It's the acid test. When someone laughs at you for being a Christian, it may hurt, but it can't stop you. You just simply outlast your critics. Well, I think that's enough for today. Opposition comes and goes. And the tide in your life might be right out right now, but it will come back in. So hang in there. Let's pray together. And Father, we've looked today at some of the ways that the world opposes your work. We know you said in your word that we should not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And we should realize that behind the opposition, the source of it is that old serpent, the devil. And we know that he will use ridicule and organized resistance and rumors and many other things to discourage us. So would you help us to realize that the cause of our discouragement, whether it's fatigue or frustration or failure or fear, help us to take the antidote and to rely on you. Don't let us underestimate the opposition, but to reinforce our weak points By the power of your Holy Spirit to encourage others and most of all, help us to refuse to quit because we're doing this for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.